Welcome to the Classicist Podcast with Victor Davis Hanson. I'm Peter Robinson, sitting in this week for Troy Senek. We have a special live edition of the podcast recorded in front of an audience here at the Hoover Institution. Victor, let me quote you in North Korea. This actually comes from a piece of the documentary that did not air just now, but I'm quoting you. Over 30 years, North Korea has found a formula of feigned madness and threat to develop nuclear weapons. And when you weld those two factors together, North Korea has a formula to get massive foreign aid and to develop a global voice and influence that's not commensurate with its small population and dismal economy, close quote. What makes you, what makes you suppose the madness and the nuclear threat are feigned? Well, I mean, the logic of humanity is that we don't we want to live and we don't want to die. So it, it's predicated in the idea that if we act crazy enough, people will think the unthinkable, that we do want to die. Iran adopts the same strategy, especially when they're dealing with Western rational people, as in this room. They feel that you have everything to lose, we have nothing to lose, or whether, we, whether it's Iran, we want to have an afterlife that's paradise, or whether it's North Korea, that we have an ideology... That sets the conditions that we will say, you know, please don't do that. We'll give you some more money. And at some point, I think we reached that point when they threatened, we don't know if it's actual or fantastical, but Portland or San Diego, and we finally said this year, we're not going to play that game anymore. And then Donald Trump, whether whatever your views are, proved that he could be as crazy sounding as Kim Jong-un. And the logic of deterrence is he's... He may be, they may think he's as crazy. That's a very sad thing to say, but it might be much more effective than being ridiculous. So Obama versus Trump. This is you, again, I'm quoting you. This is you writing a National Review a couple of years ago. Quote, writing about Barack Obama, when a national leader repeatedly lectures the world on peace, takes options off the table, uses the megaphone to blast his own country's flaws, and issues rhetorical red lines, deadlines, and step-over lines, then he erodes deterrence, close quote. Victor Davis Hanson maintains that Barack Obama left this country weaker, more exposed to danger from abroad than it was when he became president. I think in, at the same time, people thought he was far more sober, predictable, nice guy, charismatic than what we had before or after as president. And that's the irony of deterrence, that if you're going to convince people that I, you shouldn't try something that's not in your interest, then you have to, you have to be sort of an unlikable person. I, I discovered that when I was about 24, and I had a neighbor who was a prison convict who kept shooting my dogs and kept telling me that he had nothing to lose, and then finally my father thought it would be good that I handled it. He said, he's not going to stop until you're crazier than he is. The sheriff won't do anything. And so we had ways of making our neighbor think that we were nuttier than he was. And, you know, I had a Ph.D. from classics in Stanford, so I wasn't a formidable-looking guy. But I had to make sure that and convince myself I couldn't continue to live like that. I had three children, so I got one of his dogs. It worked. It worked perfectly. I'm not saying it wouldn't have escalated, but... Whatever lesson you carry away from here this evening, here's one. Don't cross Victor. No, I... It's going to come up later because people think wars start by accident, and there was no accident in what he was trying to do. All right. 
On to Donald Trump. Victor, two quotations. Former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, quote, Trump isn't tucked in and worried and cautious. He's a bold leader and he speaks his mind. And it seems to me, says Donald Rumsfeld, former Secretary of Defense, that people sitting in the Kremlin in Beijing see that and are probably respectful of the fact that it is not in their interest to engage in things that are disadvantageous to the United States, close quote. Second quotation, Ross Dowdett of the New York Times. Presidency requires a certain seriousness of purpose, a basic level of managerial competence, a functional moral compass, a measure of restraint and self-control. Trump is deficient in them all. Close quote. You've got it right? Well, I think the way to look at it is that if any of you in the audience can think of a war that started by accident, I'd like to, by an injudicious remark or something like Rocket Man, I'd like to hear it. But what usually starts wars or people like Dean Acheson saying in 1950, we have no defense responsibilities for the Korean Peninsula. Or April Glassby on the eve of the Iraq War of 1991 saying that border disputes between the United States, uh, the border disputes between Iraq and Kuwait are not of interest in the United States. Or in the Falcons case, remember that, one mine sweeper was withdrawn from the Falklands. And somebody, a backbencher in the British Parliament, said we should start using the word Malvinas, and coupled with the idea that Margaret Thatcher was a woman in the Machizo Argentine mine, they thought, a dictatorial mine, they thought they don't, they won't protect this, they don't want to fight, and that turned out to be very dangerous. So I, I think that, I guess what we're trying to say is that crude, uncouth, callous people, and Donald Trump at times is all of that can in fact keep things safer than somebody who means to be globalist or humanitarian or a philosopher or indeed a Nobel Peace Laureate. But by continuing to, to reassure North Korea there won't be consequences, we're going to give more money because we're all logical and we're all sane people, they, they interpret that in ways they shouldn't. The result was that uh, they've developed ballistic missiles that could take us out tonight if they wanted. Uh, we'll come back to Korea, but other threats that the administration, that the sometimes uncouth president faces. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is in Washington. He concluded a meeting with the president. Today he gave a speech in which he said, quote, President Trump has made it clear that if the flaws of the nuclear deal with Iran are not fixed, he will walk away from the deal and restore sanctions. Close is that what the administration should do? Walk away from the deal? Do well, you consider the flaws fixable? Well, as long as it's not interpreted in Iran by the theocracy as a tool to whip up public opinion, given that they have structural problems in the economy, and there's a lot of popular, as we saw recently, there's a lot of popular uprising. It would be much wiser, I think, to restore the sanctions and say, well, you know what, you violate, they have violated areas of the accord. Ramp up the sanctions, get our allies back on board and then just let them sit there. But that deal was always intended not to preclude nuclear weapons, but to prolong it, prolong the deployment of them. So it was not a way to stop Iran. And notice one other thing since uh, the end of the last administration. The Iranians have not attacked a U.S. ship in a year and a half in the Gulf. And I think they understand today if a U.S. predator strayed into Iranian territory, which it did under the Obama administration, this administration would blow up that predator. 
The other administration thought that would be too provocative, and now they're being reversed engineered, and they appear in places like Yemen. So the Iranians, and whether whether it was the uh, four hundred. $400 million in the stealth at night on the exchange. The Iranians got the impression that a very strong, powerful, and dangerous United States would be predictable and conducive to any type of negotiation. They took advantage of that. They're human. It's not because they're Iranians or Muslims. They're human. If you have a different view of human nature, it can be very dangerous to those around you. Russia. A couple of items. Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, testified recently that Russia is going to interfere in our elections all over again this year. That's item one. Here's item two. This is just in the last couple of weeks. President Putin has repeated that the collapse of the Soviet Union represented the great tragedy of the 20th century, and he has claimed that Russia has developed a new class of nuclear weapons that could make our nuclear defenses obsolete. Here's the third and final item. Against all of that, Russia has an economy smaller than that of Belgium and a shrinking population. How serious is the Russian? It has an economy one-twentieth of China. It's got a population almost half of the United States. But that said, it's got the second largest number of nuclear weapons, over 6,500. It's a very dangerous power. But what you don't want to do in diplomacy, it seems to me, is talk loudly and carry a soft stick. Whether it was aggression into Crimea or Ukraine, Ukraine, or threats to the Balkans, or the hot mic exchange with Obama, where he said to the Russian outgoing president that he wanted to be flexible after the election, he would be flexible in missile defense, or ridiculing Mitt Romney in the second debate because Romney said that Russia was a threat. All of that together gave an impression that the United States was desperate for reset. And then when you coupled it with sort of humiliating lectures to a thug like Putin. Like, for example, he, well, Putin is just a cut-up in the back of the room as an adolescent, or he, he's into a macho shtick. And you combine the, most, the worst of both worlds. I know that all of you have been in high school or grammar school and human nature being constant across time and space, that you don't humiliate the bully unless you're going to back it up. It only provokes him. So what we did was we provoked and ridiculed Putin as we reset with him and told him that there wouldn't be consequences. And the result was he got it into his mind that he could interfere with elections. He'd been doing it since, since 2013. We know that. And when President Obama said, cut that out, Vladimir, it's not taken seriously any more than a red line in serial. And this administration is doing what? Well, it's one of the great ironies now is that I, this administration was supposed to be soft on Russia, kept kept the sanctions and beat them up. It armed the Ukrainians. It just got in a skirmish with I mean, this in the Cold War. It would have been an existential threat, but it killed a number of Russian mercenaries. Jim Mattis's orders to shoot on sight if we were threatened. And so we're doing, and, you know, we've upped the NATO. Six nations now have met the 2% contribution. They're right on the front line. So the tragedy of all this Russian hysteria is... But, excuse me, but... Donald Trump is correct when he yes, tweets that he's been tougher on Russia than Obama was. Is that he was far he's far tougher, and at the same time, he's considered. Uh, one day people say that he's too provocative, less the next day they say that he's uh, too naive and he's appeasing Putin. But the reality is that we're being tougher with Russia. The tragedy is that 
once you reestablish deterrence, then you can use diplomacy. So we have a lot of issues that Russia actually has commonalities with us. They do not want Iran to get a nuclear weapon in the long term. They are worried about North Korea. They have a border with North Korea. They have a border with Iran. They have nuclear uh, rivals or nuclear-capable powers. Think of it. They have one in China. They have one in India. They have one in Pakistan. They're going to have one in North Korea. They do in North Korea. They, they're going to do it. We don't have the, that type of situation. So Why couldn't we go to Putin and say, listen, you thug, you think we're a thug, you're a thug, Let's work out a deal on North Korea about an embargo or a blockade, or let's do something with Iran. But we've lost that card that Henry Kissinger played so effectively in the Cold War. China. Again, Victor, let me set this up with a couple of quotations. Here's one. The late economist and foreign policy analyst and Hoover fellow, whom many of us still miss, Henry Rowan. This is Henry Rowan writing in 1996, quote, when will China become a democracy? The answer is around the year 2015. This prediction is based on China's steady and impressive economic growth, which in turn fits the pattern of the way in which freedom has grown in Asia and elsewhere in the world, close quote. South Korea became rich and then democratic. Taiwan became rich and then democratic. And Henry Rowan was not alone in supposing that by about now, China would have become democratic. The second quotation, and this is a headline in the Washington Post just a few days ago. Quote, specter of one-man rule as China lifts President Xi's term limit. Close quote. Economic growth and rising incomes were supposed to lead to democracy in China. What went wrong? Well, the examples that you gave of South Korea or Taiwan, they had one, and we could go further with Europe, Italy, the former axis of World War II all became democratic had one commonality. They had a steward in the United States with either a gun to their head or financial aid. We didn't have that relationship with China. They were a patron of the Soviet Union. And there was no evidence historically that I can think of that vast GDP growth without that type of pressure or that stewardship will ever lead to democratic government. And, uh, I wish I could say as a student of ancient Athens that democratic government is a norm throughout history, but it's the parentheses, it's the exception. So this idea that suddenly people abroad would look would come to Hollywood or they would come to Stanford University, or we, we see a Chinese visitor, and they would be so impressed with our glorious culture, they want to replicate it, was kind of an arrogance on our part. They liked the economic benefits of capitalism, they liked the material benefits, they liked the luxury, the personal satisfaction satisfying your personal appetites, but they're not necessarily sold that constitutional government is a good thing in their history and tradition. And so I never really bought into it. I wish it were true. I wish Victor, it's true tomorrow, but I don't think it is. Victor, the, you'll know this in more detail than I, but the revisionist histories of the Cold War, it seems to me, all make the same mistake. Frankly, it was a mistake Jimmy Carter made. It was a mistake that underlay at least much of detente. And the mistake was this. Well, of course, they talk like communists. The Soviets talk like communists, but they don't really mean it. They want to be a great power. They had to get rid of this ancient regime. They had to get rid of the Romanovs, and it happened to be that communism was at hand. They adopted that ideology, but they don't, they don't, they're not committed to a worldwide revolution. They just want to be a great power. 
And then our colleague, Stephen Kotkin, historian Stephen Kotkin says, the great revelation of reading the Soviet archives is they were communists. Even when they were talking only among themselves, the Politburo used all the categories of communism. Have we made the same mistake about the Chinese? They don't really mean it. Well, I mean, if we count up the regimes in the 20th century as far as their body count, we get six million, one and a half with Cambodia, six and a half with Hitler, 25 to 30 maybe with the Soviet Union. And we come to China, about 60 million. So a regime that killed more people than Russia and Hitler, Stalin and Hitler put together was not necessarily predictable that they would embrace at any time that I can see of democracy. There's no, there's no tradition in China. It doesn't mean that China cannot have a reformation or reform, but given their tradition and history, they're more likely to interpret their economic success as a mechanism to further their hegemonies. If we look what they're doing in their region with the Spratly Island bases and the pressures that they put on Taiwan and South Korea and Australia, it goes something like this. Hey, you guys, the United States is a spent power. They only have a third of the population that we do. They're on the descent. We're on the ascent. We're sort of like the co-prosperity sphere the Japanese established in the 30s. Westerners are decadent. You better cut a deal with us. We're reliable. But if you think the United States is going to risk one of their cities to protect Melbourne, or Taipei, or Seoul, you just, they're, just, they're not capable of that. And that's the message that they've been giving The Economist magazine, current issue. The pace of China's military modernization and investment is raising doubts about America's long-running commitment to retain its dominance in the region. The point you just made. Even as China's challenge has become overt, America has been unwilling to stop it. Close Close quote. Should we try? Should we just let them have the South China Sea and greater influence in Asia? Well, when you say, should we, you mean America's. The yes. better question is, should Australia, South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan let them? I mean, that's a mutual decision that they will have to make, but they pretty much made it. But they like constitutional government. They like free market capitalism. They like individual liberty. And we are, as their ally and their major ally, are trying to shepherd their joint resources to offer resistance to North Korea, China, and Russia. And by the way... We're in a weird situation because countries that can make nuclear weapons like, I don't know, Toyotas or Kias are not doing so by choice. And countries that make them, you know, pretty much like a Yugo, South Korea, I mean, North Korea, are. We need, we're, I think we're telling now the Chinese and the Russians that this was an asymmetrical relationship. And you played this game where, oh, we didn't know North Korea is going to get a nuke. Oh, we didn't know that Iran's doing it. And at some point, we're, we're going to say to them that the next round of something that we don't want to happen, nuclear proliferation, will probably be democratic and pro-American if Taiwan and South Korea and Japan are forced to create, recreate deterrence and the missiles will be pointed at them. It's a very powerful, it's a very repugnant tactic, but it's a powerful one that in extremists we might have to consider. Shoot one of their dogs. Victor, how do you avoid in this country I have the feeling that this is something that would only seep into public discourse in the edges. You'd not, you wouldn't get a leading figure saying it out loud, but it would be present all the same, and that is the Council of Despair. They do have an economy that's growing faster than ours. They 
do have a population that's four times, more than four times, four, roughly four times <coughs> ours. I had lunch with a, an important venture capitalist the other day, and he said he's English, but he, he was just talking as a, as a VC. China is the future. The United States is done. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you avoid a council of despair? I think you look at, you always, to answer these existential questions, you always look at history. This, that same argument was given in the 1930s. Yes. Both, both by Stalin. You should see what Stalin's done with a collectivized farm. You just can't match that agriculture. Instead of Hitler. I have seen the future and it works. Yes. Yeah, and I, we, you don't have anything like the, Charles Lindbergh came back and said, you have nothing uh, like the Stuka dive bomb. But those, when you look at it realistically and empirically, China has a nuclear India on one side and nuclear Russia. What would people think if the United States was sitting here and Canada had a nuclear arsenal pointed at us and so did Mexico? That's not an enviable situation to be in. 400 million people in China have never seen a Western doctor. For all the talk about GDP, which are roughly comparable to the United States, they have a population three times as large. So basically it's one American worker is producing goods and services worth three Chinese and we're not even getting into the ultimate cost of their environmental desecration and all of these other things. So, uh, I, I'm not naive and I'm not idealistic and starry-eyed, but I do think throughout history, constitutional, maybe not radical democracy, but constitutional democracy allows an input, a give and take, a transparency that ultimately creates a more stable society. Victor, a couple of final questions. <clears throat> one small, one big. I'll save the big one for last. Earlier this winter, President Trump announced that he intends to nominate as the next ambassador to Australia Admiral Harry Harris, the commander of our Pacific fleet. The Australian magazine, quote, the move is likely to anger Beijing, close quote. Good move? Well, I mean, it's always a bad thing when a, <laughs> when a government worries what another government says about it. You know, when they say, you can't do this or you can't do that. When the Palestinians or Hezbollah says, you can't move your embassy to Jerusalem. If you would listen to that, that would be the start of dissent. That's what people did in Hitler in the 30s. So, yeah, I mean, we have somebody who's knowledgeable of the South China Sea. He's knowledgeable about the worries in that area. If we were to go to Australia or South Korea or Taiwan, I just talked to the South Korean consul not long ago, and you asked, what, what are you worried about? It's not tariff. Worried, but not stop their chief. It's China, China, China. They they say the same thing. They're coming to us, and they see us as resource rich or good markets or whatever the argument is, and they say that you will not help us. You say back to them, "Well, you're an adult, can't you?" And they say, "Not against a billion people. We need your help." So there's a new realism that they want to stand up in a muscular fashion, take on their load, which I think is really helpful. I'm not pessimistic at all. I'm optimistic that we can contain China. I'm not optimistic that it's going to look like Carmel, California. Uh, Here's the last question. In some ways, this question is behind everything that we just saw in that documentary, and it's behind our whole conversation. Goes something like this. The Roman Republic lasted 400 years, and then the Roman Empire lasted about 
400 years more. In the long arc, rise and dominance and decline and fall, where are we? Well, when there was also 900 years of the Byzantine Empire. It's, it's a good question because usually in, in history, what causes decline? It's not, unfortunately, because it would be correctable. It's not environmental desecration. It's not barbarians on the horizon. It's not inflation. It's usually periods of success that create lethargy and luxury. The Romans called it luxus, luxury. And then people forget the ethic or the sacrifices that created that wealth, and then they enjoy it. And then one of two things happens. They either have a, like the Rome, five good emperors, Marcus Aurelius, all the way, uh, Marcus from roughly to the second, first to the second century AD, and they rebound and they go through cycles. Here in the United States, the question is, we all know through history what it would take for a renaissance. We would have to have physical prudence on our budget. We would have to continue to produce energy like we have. We all know it. We just feel that we're not forced to yet. We'd have to reform entitlements. But there are signs that the United States is in a renaissance. I'll give you just a couple. So if we were to rate the top 30 universities in the world, not us, but the University of Tokyo, the Times Education Supplement, I think 13 of them were American, and five of them were in California. You look at energy production, next year we're going to be the largest oil producer in the world. And we're now the largest cold natural gas or petroleum producer in the world. We're the oldest democracy. We have a lot of existential problems about our K-12, through and we have a lot of tensions. Red-blue uh, divides are starting to resemble the Civil War. But I think we're over the hump of the seven. The low point, in my view, was not 2000. It was something around 1975, 1980. We couldn't build a car. We, we, uh, we were running out of oil. We had a word called peak oil, which is now fossilized in our pollution. So I think we've seen what's wrong. We're just we're climatizing ourselves with sacrifices that are necessary to get back where we are. Mr. Davis Hansen, thank you. Thank you. I, I believe we have about 10 minutes or so for questions. There's a microphone in each aisle if anyone would like to ask a question. Good evening, and thank you very much for a very stimulating talk and uh, video. Uh, my question has to do with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I understood was a way to encircle China with uh, trade relationships to uh, build um, walls against uh, the Chinese uh, economic invasion of the U.S. Uh, current administration has disavowed us. Uh, your comments, please. Well, it was a very funny thing that Barack Obama approved it or he advocated it. And then one time Secretary of State Clinton did, but then both Republican and Democratic candidates opposed it. And it's hard to tell with Trump whether it's his art of the deal NATO approach where he talks in uh, superlatives and then he says, I want this and this and this, and but he settles for 51%. And he's doing that with NAFTA as well. We'll see what happens. But uh, you got to remember one thing, that these partnerships, as you point out, they're, they're not really free trade as we know them. They're more free trade among a, small, a, a particular cloister. And they have certain, as you say, geostrategic implications. 
free trader doesn't believe in them because they just want the arena to be free for everybody. Not a particular alliance gets a, a better deal than another alliance. So it's kind of tricky to say that Trump is a restrictionist when he's opposed to a particular group having a better deal among their own members. But the reason that we do these things is for reasons other than just economic growth. In the case of the North American Free Trade Association, it's sort of a cohesive political and cultural and social dividends as well. And I think that he's negotiating right now. I think it may be a good thing, and he thinks that by threatening tariffs or imposing some, he might get a better deal. I think, it, as it was written, there was no political support in the United States in either party, 51% to approve it. Yes. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, Victor, a question. We, uh, you talked about North Korea. You talked about China. You talked about Russia. I think we both agree are rational players. I'd be interested in your, your thoughts about Iran, which comes, I think, with two other sets of uh, parameters, which perhaps cause some confusion, at least in my part. One is in the Sunni-Shia debate. They are the, the people on the bottom with a chip on their shoulder. And the second, of course, is the, is the external belief system that uh, there is a destiny here, and if we blow the world up, that's okay because we will survive in the next life. I'm wondering if that concept actually has any serious merit if it plays in the, in the minds of the rulers of Iran. One would think that would be true given their nihilism. I mean, Rothenjani years ago said that Israel was a one-bomb state and Persia was the only country that could survive a nuclear attack because if they lost half the population, it would not be considered a defeat. And there was always this element in Shia Islam of sort of martyrdom that the Persians and the Shia had not given, been given the full credit for the uh, ownership of the Islamic world vis-a-vis -vis the Sunnis and the Arabs. That's all there. But I, I don't think any particular country uh, decides that they're willing to lose half their population to win a particular war. Israel. So what, what, what's, the, what's the answer to Iran? It was pretty much what we had. We had tough sanctions. 40% of the country are not native Farsi speakers. We had the Europeans on board. Uh, we had the Green Revolution of 2009 when they were out, a million and a half people were out in the street, and we didn't say a word initially for 14 days to help them. But those, those ingredients are still there. So if we could find ourselves imposing sanctions, keeping our oil production high, because after all, that collapses the world price, and it hurts people like Russia and Iran, uh, I think that those conditions would reassert themselves. The worst thing that I've done, that we've done, and I think in the last administration, was this Iran deal. Precisely because we stopped the sanctions, we gave them cash infusions, and a lot of that money ended up in the hands of Hezbollah with this effort to create a, a Iranian Assad crescent. We were really flummoxed by it because, uh, on the one hand, they were fighting ISIS; on the other hand, they were existential enemies. They said. That didn't have to happen, but it was a result of giving them this cash and allowing businesses to go in and reinvest. Yes. Hello, good evening. Thank you for taking my question. Um, I grew up in South India and 
growing up, we used to have these uh, family lunches on Sundays. Uh, <clears throat> aunts and uncles would come over. And uh, I very vividly remember um, one of the conversations uh, where my grandpa was, uh, uh, you know, telling our family that, you know what, we don't have to worry about uh, nuclear strikes because uh, uh, Pakistan's uh, nuclear uh, missiles are probably logged and the keys are in the U.S. president's pant pocket. Okay, so I just wanted to get your view so that I can go and tell my grandma that grandpa was wrong. Well, you make a good point. I don't want to be too provocative, but I think the control of Pakistani's nuclear arsenals is a great I mean, we're Trump is talking about cutting off all aid to Pakistan. If you came from another planet and you looked at Pakistani behavior vis-a-vis -vis American interests, you'd say that it was an enemy, at best a neutral, but surely not an ally and a recipient of American foreign aid. But Pakistan's not crazy either. And they understand that India is a much greater, larger country and that the nuclear arsenal of India is still larger. And, and by the way, I mean that literally. Um, a person once from South Korea, a general, came to the office and wanted to speak, and he said, Barack Obama wants to reduce 6,500 nukes down to 1,500. And then he wants to go down to 500. Yes. And then he... Of course, I was teasing him. I said, but what does it matter? It would only take 15 to ruin civilization as we know it, true, of the big ones. But he said, Russia has no clients. You have Taiwan you protect. You have to protect Japan. You have to protect South Korea. You have to protect Europe. We want to know how many nukes are committed to us. And I said, what do you mean? Give me a number. Is it 15 of your nukes protect us? Is it 20? So if they attack us, you'll use 20 against them. And that seems so adolescent, but in fact, he, he had a reason to it. He said, you're negotiating with Russia that doesn't have clients that depend on the nuclear umbrella, and yet you are reducing the number of nukes that are allotted to us. And it was almost a competition with other American allies. We don't think that way, but a lot of people in the world are forced to think that way. And I think we have to be sensitive to it. But what would keep Pakistan from attacking India is that in Pakistan thinks that for a variety of cultural, historical, political, religious reasons, and given uh, India's nuclear deterrent, and given India's good relations with the United States, increasingly better relations, it would be a very stupid thing to engage, send a nuclear weapon into India. It would end Pakistan as they know it. And that keeps I think last, we have time for one last question. Um, so it seems it's been a question since the American Revolution, um, championing pretty radical values of human liberty and freedom. When do we get involved? Uh, in, I, I, can you say that again? I'm sorry. I sorry. Um, it seems it's been um, a question since the American Revolution of championing really radical values of human freedom when we actually get involved in foreign conflicts, um, starting with the French Revolution and continuing on. Um, Secretary Tillerson, speaking here about a month ago, said that we have our values, and then we have our interests, and we have to act when those two align, um, but we can't always act. So what I'm wondering is, from your perspective, when do we do things not for our own security and deterrence, but for the larger goal of human liberty and democracy? It's a very good question, because it's the central dilemma in American foreign policy, and we tend to look at certain things um, as positives, and it's not always based on blood and treasure, but the outcome. So we lost 38,000 Americans killed and another 60,000 in Korea. And even though we didn't unify the peninsula, it's considered a, a noble thing that worked. 
We wouldn't have Samsung. We wouldn't have over 100 million Koreans enjoying a good life today if it hadn't been for America. We had a lot, much smaller sacrifice in Iraq and Afghanistan, yet we consider that's a failure so far in Afghanistan because we haven't achieved those results. So I guess the answer is that when we feel that a country abroad represents either a humanitarian but more likely a political uh, it's a political problem of such proportion that it justifies American blood and treasure, then we will invest it. But we have to have the idea that if we're going to go to war, we're going to have to win, and win is going to be defined a very different way in the nuclear world. I guess what I mean by that is don't go into places like Libya. Gaddafi was a monster in rehabilitation. It was as bad or no no worse than the alternative, which you see. I don't think I would have gone into Syria. I wouldn't have set a, a red line to go into Syria. I think had we stayed in Iraq, it would have it would have evolved into something like Palestine. After all, in 1956, Ike was up for re-election as Obama was in 1912, 2012, and he said to the United States, "This was not my war. It was Truman's war." I've had I've had people on the DMZ for four years. It's about time to end. Pulled everybody out in 1956. I guess what I'm saying is that we have to pick and choose where we intervene, and it's a mixture of political realism and idealism. And once we decide to intervene, our prestige, our power is on the line. We have to win, and win fairly quickly in a democracy. There's one final thing, and that is there's a certain number of people throughout the world that faced extermination. The Cambodians were one. The Armenians and the Ottomans were one. The Greeks were one. The Israelis are are one. The Kurds are one. So there's a lot of people in the world who have no natural allies, and yet, given their history, culture, politics, they've been very noble people. And I think they've earned a special place uh, in the American political system for their protection. So I think that explains why we go overboard as much as we can to help the Kurds or we protect sort of a bothersome ally like Greece, which wouldn't exist if we weren't, because Turkey would still have ambitions there. We preserve, I think, Israel without us. Israel would be in deep trouble. There wouldn't be an Armenian, probably, had we not been an ally. I think the United States can balance those moral and realistic demands that are put upon itself, but not if it intervenes and doesn't win. We've got to get rid of this idea that we're in a century, where the word victory doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. One side will always believe it won, and the other side will believe it won. Victor, I'm going to indulge myself and ask one more question. <clears throat> I have everybody for one more for Victor. I want to return to your saying that you're at fundamentally optimistic. Since you handled China, the low point came in the 1970s, and the overall arc in your mind has been upward or an arc of recovery ever since. You realize when you say that, that the dominant narrative in Washington, where some of us just spent a week earlier toward the end of last month, the dominant narrative in Washington is that the federal government is simply dysfunctional, that Donald Trump is degrading public discourse, degrading the very notion of democracy that the Republicans and the Democrats can't come to agreement, that entitlements are out of control, 
you are optimistic, you're strategically up, you think this will pass? No, no, no. I mean, I'm asking the question that I have a feeling a lot of people want. Victor, come on, how can you be optimistic when we have so much shouting and screaming and this crazy, chief crazy horse is president of the United States? I grew up in a Democratic household, so all my four siblings are Bernie Sanders supporters, so I, under, I get this all the time. Um, I, I don't listen to what the media says, because I think that they've lost a lot of credibility with their, their predictions. And I look at hardcore facts. We have not grown at, at measly 3%. There's a good chance we could do it this year, but we had a two-quarters of 3% GDP. We're about 2.6 estimates. The economy is on the rebound. Unemployment is getting to a point where it's the lowest in peacetime history. Minority unemployment is at record levels. If you look at indicators of consumer or business confidence, we mentioned energy production. Our defensive budget is being recalibrated. Jim Mattis is being We look at, forget what the media says and say, have we ever had a foreign policy team of people like Pompeo or Mattis? Team. And so I, I understand that Trump is crude and he says rocket man and he gets in fights with NFL players. But when you actually look at the statistics of economic growth, unemployment, business confidence, even stock market, and the fact that when I go to my elevator up to the tower, I'm surrounded by Chinese nationals trying to get in the elevator. And I don't think Americans are cramming to get into a Chinese university. two worlds right now among, and this is why I think Donald Trump got elected, there's elite perception, mostly on the coast, and then there's people who get up every day, and they're the bedrock of America. And this election, forget Trump and forget Clinton, it was really a referendum on what is wisdom. Whether you look at the FBI's behavior the last four or five years, or you look at the DOJ, or you look at Lois Hunter and the IRS, people have said, have an administrative elite, the confidence that we put on them is not justified, and the conceit that they display to us is not justified by their reputation or their degrees. It's really a recalibration of who is smart and who's not. When we do that in America, we, have, we always do pretty well because we have this common sense traditional group that we never hear about. We always look at the Oscars or we look at social media, but in the shadows, these people get up every day, they work, they take care of their families, and they're like no other people in the world. As long as we have that group of Americans, and they're all different races, but they have a very different value system than the people in Washington. I worry when they falter, but they haven't faltered yet. Mr. Davis Hanson, thank you. Thank you. Victor, thank you. For the Classicist Podcast with Victor Davis Hanson and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.